Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N, and you can find the show on Twitter at X's for Podcast, as well as X's for Podcast.com. Kicking things off is Gambit Number 1 by Chris Claremont and Sid Koshin, and we're going to follow that up with a look at two different amazing mystic titles. We're going to be taking a look at Defenders Beyond Number 1 and Strange Number 4. Now, these titles are both sort of linked by the thread of Doctor Strange is there. And that's one of the most amazing things that we're really seeing at Marvel. Even though the incredible growth of these characters through their popularity through film has led to iconographic understanding of who these characters are visually, we're still seeing room for the idea of the character to grow. With the success of Strange being led by Clea, who finally made her appearance in the Marvel Cinematic Universe earlier this year, and with Doctor Strange being absent from Defenders Beyond, but seeing a number of his most loved side characters filling in, and of course, an appearance from Taya from the last Defenders miniseries. It's been really exciting to see Marvel magic grow at an incredible rate. I'm so excited for so many of the things we've been covering. I know we have another Ghost Rider coming up. There's the exciting recently announced Trad Moore Doctor Strange miniseries, which I will definitely be covering as a huge fan of Trad Moore. And it is really an important thing to see Marvel continue to grow, especially as they also continue to publish titles like Gambit by Chris Claremont. Now this title goes in line with the X-Men Legends line where we're seeing a lot of the greatest creators in the history of the medium to return to these characters and do essentially more of their own take on the version. Now, we have some discussions here about how this version of Shadow King really doesn't feel like it can be the same as the version of Shadow King that we're seeing by Vita Ayala over in the pages of New Mutants. Now, I think that that does kind of reflect some of the sliding timescale of how we need to take a look at these stories historically. While it would be great if every story always locked in with every other version of the character, that winds up becoming more and more difficult with some of these characters having 60, 70, and 80 years of continuity. So there does need to be some really interesting approach to understanding how this Gambit and this little Row can also be in the same universe as their adult selves alongside the comparative point of Shadow King, who is no longer just Amal Farouk, this eternal demon, but is Amal Farouk, this complicated man trapped in this identity of the Shadow King. Now, you know, the Shadow King has also been like everybody's villain. He's been Xavier villain, Storm's villain. Here he's kind of Gambit's villain, and I don't know that that exactly fits, but man, do I love the reference to the Muir Island saga, something that we'd been talking about on this show a lot, especially during the early days of the return of Moira McTaggart. There's also a number of references to the Fantastic Four run by Chris Claremont throughout this segment, and it's always so interesting that we think of Chris Claremont as almost exclusively an X-Men writer, but his appearances in other books have been so extensive that there is a Chris Claremont Marvel Universe Omnibus Edition featuring some of his stories from other angles and you know sometimes the things that Chris Claremont creates that weren't X-Men things become X-Men things. Captain Britain certainly wasn't created as an X-Men idea in 1975 but eventually Chris Claremont got his hands back on the character and put him in Excalibur and the rest has been history. We wouldn't have Betsy Braddock you know better known as Captain Britain now once sharing an identity with Psylocke if it hadn't been for Captain Britain and Chris Claremont's overall vision of how to bring big ideas together across time. So while we might have decided at the end of this 
this segment that Gambit perhaps isn't going to read as well monthly and is probably best suited to being saved for our trade waiting editions, where we take a bigger look at the ideas presented at, as a whole story at the end. It was still an amazing read, and we had an incredible time covering. Of note is there's also an extended video version. This version of the segment ran about 31 minutes, but there's an unedited 46-minute video available on Hubs Plus, our matching YouTube, which is something that we are so proud to bring you guys. It's got extended versions of a number of these segments, plus it also plays home to the Billy Club, our much-discussed coverage of Daredevil since the beginning, featuring myself and Exes for Podcast contributor Tori Sheehan. You can find that over on YouTube at Hubs Plus. Until then, we hope you guys enjoy this Gambit segment and stick around for some of our incredible magic coverage later on. If you like the show, you can always follow it over on Twitter and Instagram at X is for podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, your premier comic podcast for modern Marvels, Chronos Gaming Classics, and more. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me all over this amazing show and on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm Steven. You could find me over on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience. Just like Storm won her fight against one of Sabine's girls. Okay, so I guess there's another way to put it. We're here to talk about a book that I can't quite figure out why it exists. But I'm glad that it does. I'm glad that it's here. We have The Incredible Gambit Number 1 by Chris Claremont and Sid Koshin. And it also features incredible colors by Espen Grunderchurk and letters by VCs Clayton Cowles. And this book, you know, The Will's Portacio, Alex and Claire cover maybe makes you think other things, but man, this book is clearly a now book about a then thing. So I want to start, first things first, how do you guys feel about Gambit, Lil Row, and the fact that this book clearly is Gambit and Lil Row, but it's called Gambit, not Gambit and Lil Row, or the way it should be called, Lil Row also lets Gambit be in the book. I think my reaction comes down to when I messaged you and saw the schedule and said, there's a gambit book <laughs> so yeah that that was my reaction especially finding out who wrote it <laughs> I don't know quite how I feel about legacy titles like this. You know, previously this year, what was the one that was long running and that like Fabian Cieza got a Legends or whatever it was called? I don't know how I feel about those. I don't know that I love giving everybody a chance to go back and say that the stories are still in continuity. I don't know that it's the best use of our time. I was reticent to read this one because I'm not super interested in Gambit. I love Storm but Lil Row is not my favorite Storm story and era. So the setup here was all not high on my list. I will say, given those things, I was I enjoyed it more than I was expecting to. I really went into this thinking of it as a job. I would read it and I would have thoughts to talk about it with. And I didn't have the worst time of my life. Let's put it that way. I, I have to agree with you, TK. This book was um not particularly for me. Gambit's a character that's there in comics for me. I don't have any particularly strong feelings. Nothing negative, but I don't have anything particularly strong to say about Gambit. And I never read when there were the young X-Men. I'm not exactly sure why Storm is a kid again. Uh, she got de-aged at one point. It's a whole thing. Yeah, they're not the young X-Men. It's just young Storm. 
Oh, so this is not part of the story where it's like the young original five, but then also Storm. No, no. Everybody else is an adult. She just got de-aged. Okay. Well, I don't know how to feel about that. That's fine. Uh, Whereas I think I prefer the ideas of X-Men Legends because that feels like, okay, you, you understand that these are legacy stories. You understand that these are a chance for writers to continue a story that they maybe didn't get a chance to because of whatever so reasons. And I don't, I like those ideas and I, I don't mind reading those stories. This, however, feels weird because when you see the title Gambit number one, you think, oh, Gambit's getting a solo issue in current day. But Gambit is currently incapacitated dead question mark over in Excalibur so it feels really weird not to say that Marvel hasn't done that recently where a character will appear in a different title and you're like they're kind of maybe dead right now we don't know what's going on with them but the show having this be labeled like it's a new issue like it's a brand new stories of current modern day Gambit but actually have it be more of a legacy story is a little bit weird and it's a weird juxtaposition to the previous X-Men Legend titles of like, well, I guess the, all those titles that those stories were continuing and were kind of being used at the moment. So if we, you can get away with Gambit, I guess. I don't know. I, I'm going to be honest. There was actually a moment when I when I saw what the story was going to be that I kept thinking, is he punishing me? <laughs> did, I, did I do something wrong? <laughs> I want to point out, though, that this really does feel a lot like Claremont didn't want to lose a beat, right? And so one of the things about this story is you need to kind of dial back into the past, right? You need to focus on where Chris Claremont kind of never stopped writing X-Men. Like, kind of uncanny 266, 268, right? So the first thing that I notice with this story is we go back to the magical days of Cairo, which is one of those things that I love that writers love to bring up. Cairo, Illinois is one of those things that it, it's real. I'm not taking from it that it's real. Anyone who's read American Gods knows how real it is, right? But this is why here. Like, you know, it's appeared in a ton of other Marvel comics. It's it's like a famous place, but I kind of eye roll that Storm, the Egyptian goddess, finds herself in Cairo, Illinois, which I believe is actually pronounced Cairo. Also, Cairo, Illinois is a dying city. Now it's like a ghost town. But at no point in the time at which we could even say this is taking place, was it anything like this? Was it this like metropolitan? Its heyday was like the 20s to the 50s. It's a funny thing because by the time this story is happening, we've now are contending with the fact that more than 20 years of publishing time has passed, but not that much time has passed in the Marvel. We're dealing with the sliding time scale again. In which case, this should probably, at the earliest, maybe you could generously say the late 90s, but it's probably got to be really the early 2000s, at which point Cairo, Illinois is like completely dead. And it's just funny to see this like bustling metropolis with like an arch in the middle of it and like skyscrapers when I don't think there is any of that happening in Cairo today. When you write about a place that's real and you move time forward, when you continue to write about that place, you are continuing to harken into a time in in that place like it's one of the reasons that i do sometimes like looking at depictions of new york that remind me of my childhood not that i don't have a ton of things about new york now that i love but you know there's things about the city certain color schemes that are just no longer in vogue right that are just no longer the predominant form of coloration and marketing the way we've changed how 
billboards are purposed, what real estate has billboarding to it. And I sort of think about how I can get it from an old uncanny or an old daredevil anytime. But now that I think about it, anytime I see a classic daredevil story, I'm thinking about like the Electra Black, White and Blood and Typhoid two-parter where I went out of my way to say, holy shit, this is New York in the 80s. Like there were, you know, girly bars everywhere. That was exactly the right. Wow, man, that's a really important way to look at this story and what we're talking about. Yes, this title feels weird because this is a role for Gambit that I've never seen him in. And this is a role for Aurora that I'm not quite sure really fits with everything. We have plenty of glimpses of the past of Storm when she was much younger and she was, you know, a little thief running around over in Egypt. But I don't know if their dynamic fully works for me. It's a weird chemistry that I'm not 100% sure I'm on board with just yet. I don't know if this is the kind of role I can see Gambit in, especially if this is meant to be a very close to his first iteration. I, I don't know if that is something I quite see for him with everything I know about Gambit. Now, if this was more of a modern day Gambit and you have a different kid, someone like maybe D-Cell. Annalie, I would love Gambit being like, hey, Annalie, I'm kind of gay too. And Annalie being like, we're different kinds of gay. I'm not just gay at night in the dark. And Gambit being like, oh, and you know, then they watch Ratatouille together. Do you think Remy cries when he watches Ratatouille? I think he gets really homesick because he remembers having so many pet rats. Okay. Jonah, what you said about how this isn't a role that you really think of for Gambit. I agree, even though this is his introduction. He is first introduced as this thief that helps little Roe survive. And then he's brought to the X-Men through her. I believe that there was probably even intent of having them be romantic when Roe was re-aged. And, you know, the whole downgrade of Roe to kind of a dumb Southern belle who is just balls out for Gambit is nothing Claremont did. It's definitely the material that follows him. I ship Rogue and Magneto. I shouldn't, but I do too. I don't ever think of Shadow King as a Gambit villain, so that Shadow King is the villain of this? Why isn't this called Gambit and Storm? That's a good question. That bugged me too. I actually, I felt really disrespected for Farouk, because it's always his image portrayed as the definitive Shadow King, and it really, that is just the man. Okay, well let's, let's, let's hold on a second. We don't know just how much is the Shadow King still wants to eat babies. So I'm not, I'm not too worried about defending the dude just yet. Well, Farouk! Well, yes, that's a more modern interpretation as opposed to... Claremont thinks that Amal Farouk is the Shadow King, and that... Uh And this is kind of the problem with Claremont coming back the way that he does, is because he believes very certain things that he writes a very certain way. The idea that the Shadow King is, like, has existed throughout time, and yet somehow is Amal Farouk, doesn't really make a ton of sense. Yeah. The idea that he is possessing Amal Farouk makes plenty of sense, and that that may be how people see him, but Claremont is still stuck in this idea that Farouk and the Shadow King are both the endless entity and other people that get possessed are just other people. And it's one of many examples that you see in this of like, oh yeah, Claremont has a really different understanding of how certain characters and certain things function. And when you write a legacy book that editors and everybody swears is in continuity, but takes place in the past and so is less consequential, and you have a writer who will write something very different about a character's background, it gets really choppy. We literally get exactly where it takes place in that beautiful fronts piece page. I love a good front 
Front's Peace page. If you're going to give me a page that's just like, hey guys, this is what you need to know to understand this book, sort of. Make it beautiful. Give it this kind of color splash. They really stepped up their game, and I don't know if it renders as beautifully in the physical print as it does in the digital, but that titling page, out of control, I really you know, want to give it up to Nick Russell and his production design for really giving me a page I love. And right on there, it says that this takes place during Uncanny X-Men 267, during the time that had only been like hinted at, which means that this comes right after Gambit's introduction in 266, which is referenced here, as is the Muir Island saga, which takes place in 278. And I really appreciate giving these context. You know, one of the things that I love to point out about that Gambit appearance is it's actually a fill-in, and Jim Lee missed that one. And as a result, Gambit has green energy, and it's a little visually different. So, you know, 266, 267, 278, 279, 280, these issues are literally a lifetime ago. I think I'm getting older in fandom, and then I think about the fact that people are trying to continue stories. They were already well into their career when they released that came out when I was a child. How do you guys feel about they're literally pointing at the past? I am not pro going back into the past, really. I can be, like, in, under the right circumstances, I feel like Marvel does a little too much of it with a lot of this X stuff and with a lot of the great, well-known X writers. And, you know, I look at something like even the conversation about why we call it Gambit and not Storm and Gambit. And, you know, I don't think that is because anybody said, well, a Storm and Gambit book isn't going to sell as well. I think they probably said to themselves, Storm is too high profile and loved and respected of a character to do this to her. And I think that is kind of an important thing to think about. Like the original runs of all this stuff are really great Claremont stories. There's some really interesting stuff there to flash back for an issue and like maybe get Claremont's help writing it or something. I don't know. I, I believe there's a way to revisit this stuff, but to just sort of go this route of here is a mini series that takes place in the past. The other thing is the writer is so high profile, you know he's not getting edited the way that current X writers are getting edited and people are saying, eh, you can't write that because it's out of continuity. It would be weird to say that this thing is happening. And Claremont submits scripts with like a bunch of stuff that is clearly out of continuity. And I, you know, everybody's just like, uh, am I going to be the one who goes to Chris Claremont and says, sir, you actually can't write that. This definition of the Shadow King is incorrect. And receive the like look that Chris Claremont gives me when I tell him that the Shadow King is written incorrectly. No, I'm not going to fucking do that. So we'll just take the script as it's written and publish it. It's tough. It is a tough negotiation. As much as I do appreciate taking a look back at what is a really strong era, it has been long enough that the problems with doing so are visible to me. Visible. So I, I also actually want to dial into that because Jonah, you really, again, it's so funny because this show has been running since like 2018. So we're at this four years, but you know, I've been reading comics since childhood. I know that Steven's been reading comics for 20 years. I know that TK has been reading comics since childhood. You know, you came into comics kind of at the time of this show. And there was a really fun quote from X-Men Unlimited writer and incredible indie comic writer, Alex Pacnadel, where he recently tweeted that he writes seven panels on a page 
page and then goes, oh, wait, oh, God, oh, no, this is an independent comic. I can do that. It's not big, too. That's fine. And I think that humor is amazing because there's like seven and eight panel pages, and that would never happen in a current issue of Uncanny. And then that one goddamn page. I love it. I love it. And it's even really well lettered. It's really, really, you you guys got to know the page I'm talking about. The, The bubble page all the way down. It's beautifully lettered. Really, really. But Jonah, I would love to know how some of the archaic style that the book is channeling here reads to someone who has always seen this style as of the past. That's, I think the best way I can describe it, Nico, is saying it's of the past. That doesn't mean it's bad. And there are places where I do appreciate the old way that comics were produced and created in the 80s, in the 90s, in the 70s, that I do enjoy. There's an aesthetic to it that I I really appreciate. And I like how, I I like how a lot of comics can be put together. But it it doesn't feel as reader-friendly and it doesn't feel as concise. I think a lot of modern comics have kind of gotten to the point of being as concise as possible with giving you what they need. And by that, it's everything is very clean. Everything is very separate in a way that you should be able to visually see everything the way that the author and the way that the creative team and everybody putting this together is specifically intending you to see it. With a lot of older comics, I think they get a lot more playful with a lot of placements of things and they get a little more, this is specifically my vision, this is what's going to happen, as opposed to understanding how the reader is going to look at this and understand this. So that page, well, I think that's an incredible effect and I really love it. I do find it and I do look at that and say, this might be hard to read for somebody. This is a little bit hard to follow. It's a lot of dialogue. It's a lot of dialogue straight down. It's something you kind of have to train your brain to read that way. Uh, Reading comics is a very fascinating medium because you have to train your brain to read in a very different way than you would any other kind of written medium. And, you know, seeing this comic harken back to the older style, it really does put a perspective of like, huh, you know, maybe maybe th- people, maybe we kind of do have the formula figured out in a way to make things very clean and concise. Yeah. Now, did you guys have any thoughts on the visual change, like of the act of reading? You know, it, it definitely didn't read as long as an older X book would, but there are admittedly some modern issues where I'm like, I read this in 90 seconds and I did read it slowly. Like I didn't read it speeding through. So I feel like this definitely read a little slower for me. How about you guys? Did you feel that that translated to the reading experience? experience it definitely read like a claremont comic like a classic claremont comic comic for me it was faster than a normal one but it definitely brought me back for sure something that i definitely missed were the thought bubbles i was very excited about that personally because i we don't get those anymore and internalism is a valid form of storytelling i understand that it's tell not show but right i mean in my opinion thought bubbles are the pros you know and and the actual speech bubbles are are the actual dialogue so for me like i the thing that i will always miss about claremont's era is the sheer amount of thought bubbles because i love reading what is going on in side of the characters heads because you get such a clearer picture and i do feel like nowadays it's a lot of it is up for interpretation well we replaced thought bubbles with narration and now no longer have third person omniscient claremontian narrators uh in those boxes it is the first person thoughts and we don't do thought bubbles anymore i was really impressed with claremont being able to harken back 
back to his old style, but not rely on it so heavily that there are times where I miss reading a good Phoenix story. I want to go read the Dark Phoenix saga again, and I won't do it because I cannot read that much, and I can't do the style, and I can't do what is going to be the different way things flow then, and especially under Claremont's pen, because I'm just kind of in the zone of reading modern comics. That's most of what I do these days. So I really got to be in the right mood to read old stuff. And I was very, I dragged my heels on reading this for a while because I was like, I got to get into a Claremont headspace. I really do. And I was actually really surprised that like, despite pages like this one that is just tons of dialogue and so much text, I was surprised at the number of places that he managed to use really good narration boxes and then not constantly rely on thought bubbles, but to put them in in a way that was like, I'm Chris Claremont. I use thought bubbles without like paragraphs of thought bubbles that are just like bad soap opera right well guys i'm so glad that we have talked about so many of the unnecessary parts of this story already you know we've blathered about gambit and storm and i guess a little bit the x-men but we all know what this really is we all know that this is really a fantastic four story and this is quite literally a journey into chris claremont's fantastic four when it returned it returned with scott lobdell and that first few issues are a weird experiment with Heroes Return and then Chris Claremont comes in at issue four and he immediately begins changing the Fantastic Four forever. We wind up getting Valeria from this, but this is actually the origin of the Bake, Sabine, and uh, Bounty. So three of the most major things from this book, this one shot from 2011 called the Fantastic Fourth Voyage of Sinbad, Chris Claremont leaves Fantastic Four in such a rush that his artist stays on and there's no like big fanfare about the end of his 30 issue run which by the way introduces Valeria Richards so Chris Claremont's Fantastic Four run deserves a lot of credit it introduces my favorite member of the Richards family but he ultimately has to finish it in this 2001 one shot which has art by Pasquale Ferry which is incredible and wouldn't you know it deals with Franklin Richards being trapped in other worlds so it's a very X-Men kind of Fantastic Four. Sabine, he's been around since 1997. And she's been a Fantastic Four character uh, appearing in that Bake storyline, which this now means this appearance goes before that appearance. Did anybody else see like heavy Samara weaving inspiration for Sabine in this issue? Aesthetically, Stephen, yes, I do definitely see the Samara weaving aesthetic that is written, that is drawn in for her. It's like the tight hair, ponytail with the eyes. And the face and yeah. The the cheekbones, like everything. (laughs) But I just, her fashion, I respect a woman that is going to go out and put a belt over a tight tank top on top of like jeggings with a crop jacket and a vaguely African inspired neck piece that is like maybe stretching her neck. Wait, does that Fantastic Four issue say war wolves? Yeah. And that's Franklin and that's Franklin getting chased by a werewolf. It's funny that you mentioned that necklace, by the way, because she's not wearing it. One panel later, one page later. Yeah. I know. It's rough. I was like, wait a minute. She's like, I like to wear it when I make the entrance, but then once you've seen me, I take it off because it's incredibly uncomfortable. But I feel statement made. I love that bolero. I would wear that. I know that a lot of people feel as though the Fantastic Four run by Chris Claremont is maybe one of the more forgettable things 
from his era. But, you know, Chris Claremont isn't just an X-Men scribe. It's unfortunate that I feel in many ways that Uncanny 267 reference actually completely covers a lot of what this issue represents. We've talked a lot about whether or not we will cover a title on Goingly or if it's a one-shot. And we've talked about maybe taking a vote on having read the first issue, if this is better to read as a miniseries or all in one go in our trade waiting segment. And for me, I kind of feel like other than the fact that this brings in some Fantastic Four that now I want to read and I want to make sure that I'm fully up to date on all of my like weird random X-Men stuff he's been doing, that I'm very interested in knowing your guys' take. Would you guys continue to cover this monthly or would you think that this is better off as a trade waiting where with some advanced time, we can know what's coming and build a kind of foundation or is the ride the game for you? I think this is going to read a lot better in trade than anything, especially if this is going to pull from elements from a title that's not specifically linked to the X office. This is If it's going to feature Fantastic Four characters, which is absolutely fine, there's nothing wrong with that. I always, I talk about all the time, I love when titles have interconnectivity. I love seeing characters pop up from different titles to help continue that world building that helps everything feel connected as opposed to they're all happening the same earth but all these different world ending threats are all happening simultaneously in different titles and you're like this feels weird this just feels weird but if this is going to include characters like that especially have them be and have them be prominent i think it is kind of important to build the foundation so you understand who these characters are where they come from uh, because this title kind of expects you to know who these characters are at least what i how i interpret it as oh yeah you're expected to know who sabine is you're expected to know who bounty is you're expected to know their roles who they are and their either connection to the marvel you know office at large and the marvel world at large or their connectivity to some form of the x-men now we kind of got their connectivity here with sabine saying that she knows who gambit is and bounty saying she's a big fan of lila cheney but it does feel like we are expected to have these characters in our repertoire and in our rolodex to pull out and say okay i know who these are they're acting like they're supposed to be this is how i think they would interact one another this for me would be uh trade waiting i just don't see getting a lot out of this monthly that i find it so exciting but having read the first issue there's enough that i would be excited to cover the whole thing if we end up deciding to do it that way and i end up being one of the people to cover it i would not be unexcited to cover the entire thing as a whole monthly i do feel like it's a lot of investment for an individual issue on top of the fact that there are a lot of references that I feel like I would want to stop and just be doing the research all at once and taking my notes and being like, oh, I want to refer back to that thing rather than once a month taking this slice and doing that for that individual issue and then having to keep that all in my head for the next issue and trying to pull it all together. I think this will read as well as an idea like this, which again, I just don't think that it's the best idea to be doing these types of printings, but I think this will read well in trade. I think trade is uh, the better option. I think that the conversation tends to become more about potentially in every issue, where does it fit in continuity and where are these characters now? And that I feel like will eat up too much time, whereas we can probably build a better, I don't know, commentary on the actual issue itself 
or the issues itself through like a more trade centric style. Well, I'm very much in agreement. I think this is going to be a trade waiting series for sure. The last thing I want to mention is just that this is very in line with some of what Claremont has been doing the last couple of years. He hasn't really had a chance to thrive uh, so much at Marvel, even though they've done some amazing anniversary specials for him. We saw the incredible Chris Claremont Paragon collection, which featured the Days of Future Past story, the Wolverine story, which not only is there an unboxing video featuring yours truly, uh, taking a look and then literally almost ruining the variants with the adhesive on the issue, but then I covered the two stories that were unique to that volume in episode 300 of X's for Podcast. So those stories have been covered in their entirety on our amazing network. Now, the other things that Chris Claremont has been doing have been a lot of sort of vanity projects. So he's done New Mutants, War Children, which I thought was tremendous. A really great piece. I was only disappointed that it couldn't be collected in the IDW Artist Edition that also contained the X-Men Unlimited story. We had X-Men Black, Magneto, which also connected to the reissue of X-Men God Loves Man Kills, which had the beginning and the end. But then it's again where he invented something in X-Men Black and has now like retroactively inserted stuff earlier. It's kind of crazy. From there, we have a couple of appearances like King Conan, Marvel Comics Presents 1000. He did a Nightcrawler story for Marvel Comics Presents Volume 3, Number 5. We had a story in the X-Men uh, Merry Holiday special. And we had that very Ogan-centric Black, White, and Blood story. So, you know, they really have been keeping Chris Claremont to these sort of specialty vanity projects. And it just kind of made sense that this one would be another one in that family. So, all right, guys, I think I can comfortably give this issue kind of like a B-. No offense to it. It didn't do anything wrong, but it doesn't really do anything that 267 didn't do. I think we're all saying it's trade waiting. Do you guys have any final thoughts on what turned out to be a pretty plain Chris Claremont return to Gambit? Certainly not bad, but just didn't really break any new Chris Claremont ground. Because I see him doing some kind of updates to his style to make it a little more modern, I am interested to see how far that will extend. And one thing I really noticed about this is it is a version of Gambit that is recognizable but solidly pretty different from the husband of Rogue that we have seen in Excalibur and Knights of X. He's a lot harder here that like, I'm testing you, Ro, like, uh, you know, tough love. I, I, I'm making you do this thing and then I'm going to show up in the, you know, I'm, I'm making you sneak into this building and then I know how to get in really easily. So I just made you work for nothing. Like, that's not really Gambit today. He's a much softer, sweeter, like he's very male wife energy. I love all of that for him. But I do think there was an evolution to that. I'm interested to see if Claremont can write something that shows me like he sees where Gambit has grown or if he's going to be like this Gambit that I'm writing and this is the definitive Gambit and this is what's always there. And no, I will not reference any like progression of the character because I didn't write that progression. and That's not where I saw him go. An X-Men evolution, if you will. Like you said, TK, Gambit, I think is, I I hate to bring this up because I hate to drag a name through the mud, even though he's nowhere near this title people keep calling warren a himbo but i think if we're gonna be really honest i'm pretty sure gambit's a little bit closer gambit's a little bit nicer to people but that's one of the that's one of the three tenets of being a himbo is you have to be you have to be very muscular and beautiful you have to be strong but you also have to drink your respect women juice not to say that he doesn't do that now but warren's not nice to people a lot <laughs> and I, I think gambit sometimes is a little bit nicer to people warren's also smart yeah, yeah. gambit's, gambit's, gambit's stupid you have to be you have to be beautiful dumb 
and and nice and uh i would like uh to counterpoint he's generally nice to people because of that god awful mystical charm ability he has that allows him to always get his way which kind of turns his niceness into a more creepy direction so you mean he's basically empath got it (laughs) oh Um, yeah i i think what i need to see from this is and this takes a lot of effort on chris claremont's end but i think he can do it is how do you showcase the character of gambit through the lens of where he's going in the future but put it in the context of this is where he started you kind of i think have to write him in a way where it feels natural for him to progress the point he's at in the future but make it so that it makes sense for where he first was introduced and that is a lot of work and that is that does probably take a lot of time to think of how do you portray that but i have faith in chris claremont to do that and i think that's the best way for this book to be successful in terms of satisfaction for readers Hey everybody, Nico here again. I almost am upset when I don't get to be on these amazing pieces of coverage. Like, the fun these rooms have, the excitement they get to be part of covering this stuff, it's why I love making this show, but getting to listen and just be part of the listening experience is always such an exciting thing, and this crew really didn't just discuss Defenders and Strange, they made these books come alive for me, and it's so exciting getting to listen to people whose love for titles or characters really transcend the fact that you're not looking at the book at the time. It's such an incredible pleasure for me to get to edit, and I hope it is for you guys to get to listen to. First up, we have Defenders Beyond number one, of which the team is incredibly effusive and positive, followed by Strange number four. Now, the team has been more critical of this title over the last few months, but it's because they know how incredible these characters could come out, and there's still always those threads that we love that we hang on to, and we hope you guys find those threads in these titles as well. Don't forget, guys, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week, with MC to Mondays, Modern Marvel Wednesdays, and XI4P Premiere on Fridays. You guys can check us out on xsforpodcast.com as well as at xsforpodcast on Twitter. And I'm Nico. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. You can also check out my original comics at kidriotcomics.com and my contribution to Young Men in Love, an incredible anthology featuring the likes of Joe Glass, Cena Grace, Matt Miner, Anthony Oliveira, Terry Blas, and more. Enjoy these final two magic segments. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Remember, the Defenders are going big time beyond and stepping outside the veil of this universe. We hope you're going to follow them, and we'll see ya. Welcome back to Access for Podcast, where we read monthly through Marvel Comics' Mutants, Magic, and Marvels. This week, focusing on the magics, we're here to talk about Defenders Beyond Number 1, Malkuth, the Neutral Zone. My name is Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And that makes me Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Thread, and you can find me over on Twitter as soon as my ban is over and instagram oh, luckily no, no bans there <laughs> and that makes me nathan you can find me online at twitter at dazzler aoa that's like dazzler in the age of apocalypse and we hope you survive this experience unlike tia's quote unquote just dying love for Stephen strange no i'm just kidding but you know that relationship that was gonna be set up but he died 
Today's issue, Defenders Beyond Number 1, Malkut, the Neutral Zone, is written by Al Ewing. It is illustrated and colored by Javier Rodriguez, and it is lettered by VCs Joe Caramagna. We're opening up another chapter in the Defenders saga that we've been reading since Al Ewing started with the Defenders title from late last year. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite comics of last year, one of my favorite to cover for X for Podcast. It was an extremely fun time, one that focused heavily on the four-color printing process, the history of comic books as an art form and the, well, as superhero comics as an art form in the 20th century, it focused a lot on the major arcana of the tarot. This time we're opening with a title with a reference to the Kabbalah and focusing a little bit more on the minor arcana. What are your relationships to these magical systems between comic books, Kabbalah, tarot, mysticism in general? I myself am actually a hedge witch, meaning I practice alone. I do my own thing. And I usually, you know, candles, herbs, all that kind of really good stuff. But also I do read tarot cards. So it was interesting to see them bring in the characters that they did and also the way they brought in the fifth by using a suit that is not usually seen in your typical tarot deck. So that was that was fun. I am the total noob who thankfully when we were reading through this Steve they were like <laughs> giving me some breakdowns on what some of the magical meanings and some of the tarot meanings were so I was like really appreciative to have that extra help with me when we were reading through. <laughs> yeah I'm also pretty much a noob. I see references to a lot of the stuff in other forms of media but I don't always make that connection back to their origination. It's cool seeing them but it doesn't really make a lot of sense to me as somebody who doesn't have that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Now, what I really like about the first Defenders miniseries before this one, Al Ewing's and Javier Rodriguez's earlier effort, is that a lot of things use the mysticism of the tarot as like an aesthetic principle. Like Ten of Swords generally uses it more as an aesthetic than as like a reading, although there's a little bit of, you know, the meanings in there implied and inherent in the story. Something that Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez did a little differently was that the last series was more of a tarot reading for the reader, you know, where the cards were given meaning and explicated through the story itself to give you some meaning. If you don't have any knowledge of what the tarot is, Al Ewing kind of gave us a story that explains what is happening, which is why I think this is a really interesting series to start out with because the last time focused heavily on the major arcana, which are really cards that tell us a lot about ourselves and the archetypes of who we are and the various aspects of our personality where the minor arcana, which are used in this, are much more like daily stories that are told about life, whether in medieval times or applicable to modern day living as well. So these cards are being chosen and they tell a little bit more about what the characters are going through and what what is happening to them. And whether or not you understand the meaning of the card in mysticism or in your own tarot readings, Al Ewing will be giving a nice little breakdown of what the card means for the character as it's assigned. And then the story, I think, will be explicating their roles in it as relates to the tarot card. It's just a nice little way of saying like, all right, this is what you can expect from the character. And if you understand enough of what the card is trying to tell you, then you might get a little bit more meaning out of it. But even if you don't like just, I mean, we'll get into each of them as we come across, but just even the very first one, the 10 
of Wands reversed. Again, these cards are all reversed like they were in the first time, which is a really interesting concept from Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez. Blue Marvel pulls the Ten of Wands, and right off the bat, Ewing tells us that it signifies additional responsibilities, a burden over and above what's already carried. And in this version, Blue Marvel is the central figure, which is just a nice way of saying, like, Blue Marvel is going to have to take on the responsibility of being a leader for a team that he doesn't even want to have. And I've, I've always thought that was so clever. I also want to touch just a little bit before we get into this, not to monologue too long. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on the Kabbalah. I am not. But what little I do understand of the Kabbalah and the Tree of Life, Malkut, the name of this issue, the neutral zone, generally means something similar to kingdom. It has a lot to do with matter and earth and worldliness. It, it relates to and emanates from, in the Tree of Life, the creation itself, the physical world, the earth, the solar system, the universe, what is material and what is here. And it emanates from that, usually evincing like God's grace in the creation, which I think has special meaning for this issue as we talk a lot about the nature of the universe and then move outside of it by the end. Because we do start immediately with Blue Marvel's selection of the cards and the appearance of Doctor Strange's last spell, which is being hijacked by eternity itself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah, I love the way it was spelled out, so to speak, right? Finally, Boom Marvel's really getting his due as one of the smartest, powerful characters in Marvel. Like, yeah, cool. Do I wish, like, Monica had been along for the ride because I love Monica? But, like, I'm glad to get some Blue Marvel solo alone time and get to know Boom Marvel as a character and not be distracted by the amazingness of Monica Rebel. Yeah, I appreciate that Ewing is picking up on the threads from Incoming, in which Blue Marvel reformed Factor 3, something that had a lot to do with the Eternity mask and Carlos Zota and Warlock and it's just a lot, there's a lot of like early Strange Tales-esque Marvel continuity that Al Ewing has been tying together with a lot of his comics over the years and I love to see that yes there is a secret organization of scientists who are essentially the science Illuminati and Blue Marvel is the leader of them. <laughs> I think that's kind of why I like these books you know the Defenders and some of the other stuff that Al Ewing does. He doesn't always pull from like modern day per se there's this kind of harking back to like almost pulp comics and some of the like the more deep dive comics instead of going oh yeah what's the popular hero oh you know captain america or you know the x-man or da, da, da. instead of pulling from you know the most mainstream he pulls from kind of underneath and you get some very interesting stories that honestly make you look and focus on characters in a very different way like <laughs> there's a lot more character development and a lot more depth to them. So like you have to kind of look at not just, okay, can this character punch hard? Can this character shoot like laser beams? You kind of have to look at what does this character hold within them? What is their struggle but what is their strength? Yes. And I love the way Al weaves these stories together and pairs them with this gorgeous kind of harken back to yesteryear pulp comic-esque style with these artists and oh, I love it. The combination is just so good. I'm very fond of the way that Blue Marvel fits in as a parallel to Stephen Strange as well with yes. how Stephen Strange is like this science wizard. He's like a less dickish Reed Richard slash Doctor Strange. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like a magical leader for the defenders the last time and lets the wild magic do its thing and then this time we've got this like guy who's essentially a science magician you know like he's yeah. a science mm -hmm. wizard, and he's got a little bit of a scully disposition towards mm -hmm. uh dr strange's molder and i think it's really cool to let blue marvel be the scully in this one where he's like oh well yes 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 magic spells and whatnot but let me tell you about the science behind it mm-hmm mm-hmm 
I enjoy that he is incredibly resistant to letting the magic do its thing, even though it's already in motion. The idea that he can take control of the situation is, even though he really can't, because things just keep moving no matter what he says. I like that. Yeah, I like that he tries to refuse the call. I like that he says, like, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to form my own team. I can be smarter than this. And it just undercuts him regardless. <laughs> right. I mean, we have seen if your will is strong enough, you can bend, you know, magic realities and the, mm-hmm. the way magic affects yep. your reality. Mm-hmm. But, like, you also still have to somewhat function within that system of magic. And he's not quite there. He's still very much functioning within that realm of science on the edge of magic instead of within the magic itself. I love seeing that, yes, he is trying to take control, but no, he's not quite there because he's not working within that system. So it's like, oh, there's going to have to be some growth. <laughs> I love how it highlights the whole joke of the old Defender series before they went to New Defenders is like when the strange bubble cloud is like, the Defenders yeah. are not a team. It's like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is really good. That's really good. Also, the magic trick. So he he literally says, like, this is not a spell. It's a magic trick. So what are you tricking me into? And right. as he cool. says that, he's holding the card in his hand. He puts it down on the deck. And then later, ah. it, he says, when did I turn over a new card? I'm like, you did it without even realizing it, man. You were just trying to... <laughs> The second card he turns is one that should be intimately familiar with anybody who listens to or participates in this podcast. <laughs> it is the Ten of Swords. <laughs> a card that yeah. usually means defeat, but when reversed, can often mean signifying the time to move on from that pain, ready or not, as L. Ewing states here. I think that's really interesting that it's pulling in Miss America, because I don't know a lot about America Chavez in the comics. I have not read a lot of her stuff. I'd like to let you you all speak about what you think about this. What exactly is America Chavez's heart-shattering losses that it's time to move on from the pain whether she's ready or not so in america chavez made in america miniseries we found out that her mothers were still her two mothers but they were human and she had a disease that she went to this place to try to get cured and the biggest shock of all for her was that she had a sister as well and you know they meet up years later her sister tells her everything you know that happened her sister is trying to get back to there and her sister gets lost in the multiverse so since then we've seen America go to Clea in one of the Infinity comics and say hey can you help me get back to my sister which didn't go right and that leads her to here where she's you know coming to Blue Marvel for help so I, I'm thinking the pain she needs to move on from is the loss of her past and her sister and let it go because her sister may not be coming back yeah yeah maybe yeah I also read that miniseries and yeah it she was exceedingly traumatized as a child like the what she went through was mm-hmm so traumatizing especially to such a young mind that you know she had very much cemented in her head that her her life had been utopia that it had been you know perfect and happy and wonderful and you know yeah she went and she got treatment for an illness that was going to kill her but that medical experimentation on her and other children imbued them with different attributes sometimes those attributes would just eat them alive other times you know they became slightly more stable like in america chavez where she's able to like punch holes through the universe as it were yeah like to find out no no you're a human you were medically experimented on all the things that you were 
were led to believe and that you've believed so wholeheartedly for the last like 10 years or so no that's all either misremembered or a lie so yeah like her entire world just got there you go welcome to some identity crisis like yeah i'm like yeah that's that's a lot the only times that i have read anything with america chavez was her marvel voices stories so was that made in the usa mini series where her powers started not working properly uh, she was having a little bit of trouble before then, but that's the the miniseries is where it reaches its culmination. Okay, so maybe we may see a chance where something actually starts changing with that state with her powers as a result of this story. There's a little interesting bit here from the spell that I think is kind of important, where the spell says, let loose an apt choice of words. The last time Stephen Strange cast this spell to summon defenders, he set it free. He gifted it to the cosmos. The cosmos has not given it back. Mm -hmm. And I think this is really interesting because it explains a little bit what's, what's going on with the spell and how what looks like eternity is controlling it. But also it kind of implies to me that like this is setting up a new status quo for future Defenders comics which is that whenever the universe whenever the cosmos itself feels itself endangered and needs Defenders it will summon them through the act of a tarot drawing it seems like this is a thing it can just do now and I think that's really interesting the idea of the Defenders is something that the that Eternity calls to itself when it, it is in need of Defenders no matter who they are do we think that that would still be a possibility after the spell gets disrupted yeah I mean like I don't know but but the thing is that if the cosmos says it has not given the magic back, then I don't know if there's a way for it to really disperse. Like the yeah, spell gets disrupted, but it also is sort of completed. True. When America Chavez and Blue Marvel are standing together, you can already see Taya's crown floating about in that cloud of tarot cards. I don't know why it took me so long to put together that she was already going to be showing up. Like that was just, oh. Oh. Yeah, at the end of the last series, she gave her crown to Doctor Strange so that she could be called. Yeah, she was like, call me. Here's my phone. I, that's <laughs> not how it's, but try it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, is that her headset? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. God. Oh, I hurt myself with that one. Anyways, <laughs> we, just, I'm just like, okay, I, it's like, I knew who the Defenders were going to be, but like, this is still a point where they didn't know who the Defenders were going to be, but the fact that Taya's crown is already wrapped up in all of those tarot cards i'm like oh you should have seen that she was coming from a mile away this is not a question this is just a formality yeah yeah and it really is like the cosmos spell is like i know you want to choose your own team but you're not going to use <laughs> your next card i mean you can see the next cards being chosen even earlier before america shows up yes those two next cards thank you so much for bringing that up are brought up when he says keep those cards to yourself earlier mm -hmm. oh yeah Yep. So this has all been this has all been planned for them, which is I think a really interesting thing. So the next card is the Ten of Cups reversed, which is a card of according to Aluing, a bonds of family and community sundered, external forces breaking down relationships. And I think it's really interesting who that ends up being because I would have assumed that would be Loki, but in fact it's Taya pictured on the card with her son Galactus and their son the Silver Surfer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Which is really interesting uh, to me because like Kaya doesn't have like her bonds of family are shown in the last series to be pretty loose as is. She's got like a hug bot to give Galactus hugs as a baby. <laughs> Probably why he's so maladjusted. But it's interesting to think like what is the bond of community that's going to be sundered between Taya and Galactus or possibly the Silver Surfer breaking down relationships from external forces. The main external force in this issue is the person that we see on the very last page, of course, a literally yeah. external force. Yeah, this would depend on where it ends up in continuity, like where this miniseries is, because mm-hmm. Fantastic Four just got out of the Reckoning War. At the end of Reckoning War, there's some pretty big changes for Galactus and Silver Surfer. It's weird that there's two cards drawn at once here because they can't get everybody here fast enough because they move immediately on to the next card, which is the Ten of Coins, the Ten of Pentacles, which I feel the need to point out. The Pentacles on the Ten of Pentacles are unique in that they are arranged in the shape of the Kabbalistic Tree of Life itself. That's something that's true on the Rider Pack, the most common and accessible tarot deck that most people have. It's true on this one too, but Loki is the figure behind it. And yeah, it's given here as the Ten of Coins reverse material success as a trap, a kingdom unwanted, a future yawning like the grave, which I cannot think of something more associated with the version of Loki we get here. This is from a time when Loki had given up on the idea of taking over Asgard, a time when material successes were a trap. This character was basically trapped into the form of being the evil Loki that they didn't want to be anymore, and a future yawning like the grave, because unfortunately this Loki is no longer with us. I love that he put the cards upside down, because it does make the art a little bit harder to see, but you get to see the other versions of Loki, like yes. the Sylvie, the, the very old school um, magical user Loki, it's like maybe Femme Loki in the back, and then yeah, like the, the Towers of Asgard. So yeah, it's like, that is the absolute story of Loki right there, right on that card, and it's beautifully done. It's really great, and it's really great to describe Loki as somebody trapped with a yawning future of a grave, because Loki's story, especially under Al Ewing and other writers around that time, including Kieran Gillen, was one of like the desperate knowledge of a trap that can't be avoided. It was, it was very tragic, and I'm hoping to see a lot more of that. I'm really excited about the inclusion of Loki in this, because after we got Cloud as a non-binary and actually out non-binary character with they-them pronouns in the last series, it's really, really great to see genderqueer and genderfluid Loki here portrayed and constantly gendered correctly by Blue Marvel, who is smart enough to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He yes. wants to be the smartest person on earth, but that is not why he is able to correctly gender a person. Mm-hmm. But it is really nice to see this version of Loki. This version of Loki is extremely fun. And when she first shows up, she drops in through a card opening in the sky of flame that says in reverse letters next. <laughs> I wonder what the significance of that is. This is a mystical significance that I'm not picking up on other than on an intuitive level. And well, it's, it's Loki and Taya coming through together. So I'm like, what adventures were you two going on because wasn't wasn't her era the fifth cosmos moving into the sixth cosmos Um, and then this is sixth cosmos loki this is seventh cosmos loki and she is sixth cosmos oh okay so i'm like they could have collided somewhere along the time stream and just decided to hop on over i could see them totally hanging out together yeah apparently it has something to do with with thor yep (laughs) or number 24 or number 24 (laughs) I need to read now because I need more Taya. (laughs) 
I didn't know Ty showed up anywhere else. Why haven't I read that yet? <laughs> yeah, that's actually pretty crazy. I, they were off in uh, Donny Cates' store, apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the look on her face when she's going through the portal with Taya. Like, uh, she's just staring at Taya, like, adoringly. I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Blue Marvel is not equipped to deal with any of these people. Blue Marvel can barely <laughs> to America Chavez most of the time. It's funny how nobody can understand the coincidences that are going on here, by the way, because, like, Miss Chavez immediately punches out Loki and is like right when I believe that my life is a lie the literal god of lies walks in and Mm -hmm. is like oh this must be connected and maybe it is and earlier we see Blue Marvel being like he his ear is drawn bright red when he realizes that he can hear Miss Chavez coming and he has just drawn a card for the Rana and he's like oh what a weird coincidence it's like none of you (laughs) understand that this is how magic works at this time yeah one more card to draw after Loki accidentally bashes the spell and breaks it, which obviously is not the end of a spell, but it is the end of it speaking here. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like the end of the haunted mansion right there. <laughs> I do like the smoke of uh, Stephen Strange's face angrily drifting out of the, the broken cloak. So the Ten of Crowns, that is a crazy card. Like, it doesn't exist, right? This it, No. Yeah, there is no there is no suit of crowns in most decks of tarot, especially not a fifth suit. There's not usually a fifth suit, no. but I like their... Like, the last series depended so heavily on the number four, the four-color printing process, the four cards that they drew, and then replaced several of them from then on, the four suits of the tarot. And this time, we are heavily depending on the five the fifth suit the five line points of the pentacle the five magical elements i think that's really smart and i think it's really interesting there have to be five defenders so why not just pull a new suit out of this deck which is a thing i think only loki could have done that's just such a mischievous and extremely chaotic choice to do do you think they're also working with five colors um well they are working with more than they were last time so i, I would believe it i mean green <laughs> is really prominent here and green is not one of the four colors normally used yeah that's huh. true tiger is like conclusion on the team is the biggest like huh to me because these are some pretty heavy hitters right and in tigra love her she's amazing love her so much she's over in moon knight which is great like right but like i mean she's just a sexy cat right like are we gonna like how dare you (laughs) she will rip off your nico nico nuts for saying that But, like, compared to Loki or Blue Marvel or, you know, Taya even, like, what can Tiger do? I'm, I'm assuming that we're going to learn more of her, like, connection to the cat people god and, like, yeah, maybe. maybe get it enhanced or something. But it, it would be great to see her connection with the, the cat people god for once instead of her physical abilities. Although, on that on that note, I think she's probably about as strong as Taya, who is just a person in armor, oh, well. um, who has some guns, I guess. But the, the Ten of Crowns is given here as some kind of culmination of spirit but why is it reversed so if we're thinking about a culmination of the spirit as relates to this person who is an avatar of some kind of tiger god (laughs) and then we're reversing that culmination of spirit where we're taking something out or we're adding something that's missing to that i'm going to be puzzling over that until we figure it out i think that's a really interesting are we talking about an absolute debasement of the spirit are we talking about something that needs to be done to get there for tigra I think she's been kind of having a lot of issues lately, just trying to to find where she sort of belongs and and who she is as a person. Because she's been spying for the Avengers on her best friend slash ex, Moon Knight. And I mean, he knew the entire time, but she felt like she was honestly betraying him the entire time. That fucked with her. That, That definitely fucked with her. So I think there's a big question that she's starting to ask herself, like, where do I 
I fit? Where do I belong? You know, and, and am I just the cat girl sidekick or am I something more? It's hard to remember sometimes because most writers don't bring it up, but, but Tigra is like a sort of like a legacy champion of the, the Tigra is a historical defender and champion of the cat people, which are a humanoid race created by sorcery during the Dark Ages. And this, this next line I just got to read because it's hilarious to me. So concerned about the cat people's uncontrollable population growth and savagery, the com- a community of sorcerers eventually banished them to a demonic re- realm. So like basically there were too many cat people going around. So these sorcerers neutered them. Yeah. <laughs> As I bet the witches were pissed too. They're like, you just sent our familiars away. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. These are all yeah. our human familiars. I got to say Tigra here as this kind of like wild card is really great because I find her the most human and relatable of a lot of these characters. I mean, Blue Marble is very human, obviously. Yeah. He's literally a human. And he's pretty relatable, but he's like extremely smart and high-minded in a way that Reed Richards often is. And I feel like if, I, if there was any one of these that I could actually hang with, it would probably be Tigra because she just seems like a person who likes to go walk at a part and eat a hot dog. Oh, yeah. Right? I love that she comes in here and goes, what is this place? Oh, no. Am I having a team up? <laughs> <laughs> that was my favorite part. <laughs> I love the little kitty short shorts she has on. Yeah. <laughs> And it's so on brand for her. Yeah, it is. I love the art style with her face. Just right when she's coming through this portal, she looks so adorable, but you also know that she kills you at the same time. Mm-hmm. I just love that look of, oh, fuck on her face. Oh, no. Am I having a team up? <laughs> <laughs> right. And it, it must have been cold weather because she's wearing like a little zip up and she's got s- semi shoes on. <laughs> but we've seen a lot of really interesting athletic wear on Tigra over the last moon night in this. Yeah. It is nice to not have always in the clawed bikini. <laughs> And, and this stuff, it does look loose enough for her to move in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She looks a little bit more digigrade on this one. So, like, when she walks flat-footed like a human, I'm just going, that just seems a little bit wrong. But I do like that this seems like she's going to walk a little bit more up on the toes. Don't ask. I'm not a furry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at least very much a furry artist without intending to be but yeah i'm like for some reason her being flat-footed makes less sense to my brain because she's supposed to be so limber and agile and cat-like um especially in the way she fights so like to see her you know flat-footed human i'm like okay so you're a gymnast when i see the more digigrade so up on those toes that slightly more cat-like you know form and figure i'm like oh not only could she like sprint you down she could definitely like leap across great distances and she could be on your ass before you could say boo i'm like okay this looks more formidable which is what i love to see in her because she is such a wonderful powerful character who's also got a lot of nuance to her and I love her. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that we all love Tiger here because this, this could easily be a room full of people who do not care about Tiger. Mm-hmm. I will fight you. I'll fight you all. Right? Tooth and claw. Wow. So <laughs> yeah. after she exclaims that she might be having a team up, mm-hmm. Blue Marble reassures her that she's not because they are the defenders and they are not a team. <laughs> and 
immediately a portal to the neutral zone explodes and they are all sucked the fuck through in what I think is one of the biggest flexes in this issue from Javier Rodriguez in terms of the figure drawing because they're all like basically like a 12 panel grid that gets shattered and sucked the panels themselves get sucked mm-hmm. along with mm-hmm. each hero separately but closely to them through the neutral zone photo and I think that's really cool Tiger mm-hmm. is actually hanging on to a comic book panel in an attempt not to get drawn in <laughs> yes I really really loved the way that these pages were executed I loved that Tiger was was hanging on to her panel <laughs> just the way that you can feel the change in gravity as the neutral zone portal sucks them all in yes it's just so well done yeah. even even that whoomp mm-hmm. works with that that suction from the portal mm-hmm. yeah I appreciate that both Taya mm-hmm. and Blue Marvel both try to steady themselves against their particular yeah. frames although Blue Marvel tries to steady himself against Taya's frame and it just doesn't work because as you said gravity is rolling them around or as Taya says gravity's playing roller coaster <laughs> <laughs> the ride I think that's my favorite art of Taya ever is that one where right after that that panel where she's posing in her panel it's like it looks like like I know she's studying herself but it looks like she's just standing there posing sexily and I'm like hell yeah <laughs> I just I love the look on Tiger's face like oh fuck we're doing this just like she's gone limp cat just <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a, there's a lot of fun to be had in this entire like two page spread it is really good there's not a bit of waited, wasted space there after several advertisements in my physical copy we get to another two page spread showing them actually like finally meeting eternity the, the cosmos that is manipulating all of these events and there's this beautiful panel of them all Loki is presenting his mail which Blue Marvel immediately locks onto in a very casual way he gives some great narrative dialogue uh, narrative captions that are just like explaining what he thinks about each of these people as they go into their journey and probably my favorite part here is when he gets across to saying Tiger is a seasoned Avenger in good standing but unless Luke Cage is involved I keep a distance from that team and I remember the role in my wife's death like I love that Blue Marvel is not somebody who is just like oh yeah the Avengers they can help save us it's like ah, Avengers are here does Luke Cage know they're here like can I talk to him about it <laughs> such a great character moment for Blue Marvel that he's just like I do not trust those guys I only want to talk to the one that I know and like right like black man to black man I need to know how much fuckery I'm about to experience because they they've not always made his life better yeah no like like they he's had history with him and it hasn't been pleasant history and I like the fact that that he marks on that and makes note of that and it's like okay yeah there's definitely reason why he would be exceedingly hesitant to work with certain people here like yeah it makes sense and yet he still has to lead them somehow yes and uh i really love the way eternity is drawn here like i I don't know if you guys want to talk about that i'm a fan of every time eternity shows up because there's always an opportunity to like really flex negative space that you can turn into the figure and this eternity by javier rodriguez is so cool and after last time's journey through the different universes and iterations through time now it seems like we're going literally beyond the universe we're going outside of him and he's like after i open my box and let you out of my body you will be completely without aid you will see the face of my enemy and then nothing and your enemy is apparently a 1970s xanadu villain (laughs) (laughs) yes i'm just saying saying, and i'm loving it i'm honestly here for it 
the Beyonder who, for our audience, I will describe as the body of Captain America Steve Rogers, but with Michael Jackson's hair and a metal suit with gigantic bendy bows for shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> I, I Let's say Nightwing disco fight too. Yes. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. Yet another Omega on his chest. So mm. I'm glad that we're getting another Omega. The Beyonder is here. He's back, baby. He's the thing that's outside of the universe. He is from beyond. And this is a baby Beyonder. And maybe all grown up now. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to that. Before we get into the Beyonder of it all, I do want to shout out this two-page spread of nothing but black, but with panel borders and gutters that imply a lot of motion throughout the pages. Mm-hmm. Like when I'm going through this two-page spread of just black panels with white borders, you can't see anything that's happening. All you can hear is Blue Marvel's narration uh, in his own head. But it, the way that they're laid out feels almost arbitrary, but it guides your eye through the page and through the captions in such a way that it starts to feel as if things are going faster or moving bigger because we start to get larger and larger black panels. And even though I can't see anything here, just the storytelling inherent in the way the, these gutters are chosen along with the captions really makes it feel like there's movement and time passing and something happening and getting bigger until we get to that Beyonder page. And I just, I want to give a clap it's a clap a verbal clap me and the beyonder like i i haven't followed many of the stories about him exactly like i did read secret wars but i like missed out on his part of it you know i i find the beyonder hard to redeem as a scary character when he was the guy who went around the world trying to mentally coerce dazzler to be with him like or you know who did all of these stupid goofy things in secret wars too this uh, page also says whatever happened to the second cosmos that's the teaser for the next issue so do you think the beyonder happened to the second cosmos we never got that far last time we went as no, far back as we the didn't. Cosmos, i believe yeah i think we only got back to like the, the third or the fourth mm-hmm. so yeah wait in the oh my gosh in the second cosmos are they going to be like one dimensional <laughs> yeah we're going to get into really flatland territory where it's just like dots and lines <laughs> i like this iridescent design for the beyonder's um suit like that it shines in the light what there's no light because they're outside of everything but it still shines iridescently and it's a lot better than the like raw silver look that it had in the past yeah maybe it's the cosmos that he brought with him Hmm. And it, it gives us a chance to see our defenders again, just from the uh, the radiation of his light. Although I love the fact that we see the Beyonder from the front side, but their view is all from, from the <laughs> polished metal backside. That's Tiger is over there like, is that cake? <laughs> is it cake? <laughs> Do I need it's to take my it? <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that he here says, "I am from Beyond." I know that's like his catchphrase or whatever, but like he is, in he is beyond. currently in Beyond. Yeah, he's currently Beyond. <laughs> he's not from there. We did see all of the other Beyonders killed at the conclusion to Jonathan Hickman's Avengers run just before Secret Wars. So it's interesting that we now find out that the baby Beyonder is the only survivor, seemingly. Ah, hmm. baby Beyond. Bed Bath and Beyond? No, wait, never mind. I'm excited to see where this is going. The first series left me, like, it left me with a lot to think about in these characters. I madly fell in love with Taya, so I'm glad that she's here again. I hope, like, Taya becomes the the multiversal defender who's always there, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because every non, non-team non defender sort of had a few stalwart characters, right? Yeah. So, yeah. like, I hope that's Taya for this team. Tiger's inclusion at 
the more I think of it, makes me hope that they're going to explore more of her role as the, the champion of the cat people. Yeah. Most of them are a combination of, of mysticism and science. So Blue Marvel is science on the edge of magic. And America Chavez, I mean, that was also science on the edge of magic. You know, Taya was a scientist for her cosmos and she was, again, that science on the edge of magic. So I think that's kind of a, a, a theme. Where does the science start? Where does the magic begin? Can they be used in tandem? You know, or are they from a, the, the same source? It's interesting too, because, right, because Taya comes from a universe without magic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then Loki mm-hmm. comes from a realm of entirely magic that is often thought of as science, at least in the MCU movies, not so much in the comics. There's some similarities between this group. Obviously, I'm valuing picked them for the storytelling benefit here, but there's some similarities between these and some of the classic defenders. Like Loki, if you look at them on, you know, as their role in this, very much like Brunhilde, especially on the front cover of the wraparound one. Got the spear in the same way as Brunhilde. Taya, obviously ties in with the Silver Surfer as a classic stalwart defender. Tiger and the cat are legacies of the same character and then in the same position on the front and back of this comic. Yeah, I mean, Tiger was what... <laughs> Tiger had the suit that Patsy Walker, you know, stole or borrowed or whatever you want to say <laughs> to become the Hellcat, right? So inherited, that's better. You know, Blue Marvel's obviously functioning in the Doctor Strange role in this. And then we've got America Chavez, who... <laughs> is she a little bit beast? Is she a little bit name? More. I, I think mean, she's Namor. <laughs> yeah, I think she's Namor. The personality. Yeah. I'm sorry. Did you just compare America Chavez to Namor in attitude? <laughs> Excuse <Yeah>. me. <laughs> No, 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 because her personality is not 90%. Confident? Yes. Namor's attitude problem? Hell no. Look, I know you don't like Namor, but... (laughs) I'm excited to see what happens outside of reality. I am so stoked for that. I'm excited to see what what Sephiro we're going to be on the next time, if if any, from the Kabbalah. I I don't know how that's going to be structured. I'm interested in the structure of this comic book. Yeah, I cannot wait this is going to be both a deep and entertaining ride and I love it when a comic can accomplish both you know sometimes you get too much plot too much you know uh, story and you you just it's Aliwing usually brings the right amount of both and I got I'm glad to see more of my sexy wear cat because I love Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of X's for Podcasts where we talk about Modern Marvels, Chrono Skimming Classics, and XI4P alternate universes. I'm Nathan, you can find me online at DazzlerAOA on Twitter, that's Dazzler, like in the Age of Apocalypse, where you can hear me talking about how fucking fabulous Umar is, oh my god. <laughs> I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hello, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that makes me Dame Red Thread, a.k.a. Raven. And you can find me over on Twitter because I finally got my ban lifted. (laughs) 
and possibly Instagram. And hopefully you survive. Unlike that poor demon that Clea summoned. Poor demon who's just fodder for, ugh. Ay, yeah, 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 yeah. Poor demon. Strange number four was written by Jed McKay. Our penciler is Marcelo Ferreira. Our inker is Roberto Poggi. Our colorist is Java Tartaglia. And our lettering is by VCs Corey Petit. So, like, I gotta ask, like, going into this, what is y'all's experience with Umar? Like, are you, like, a noob to Umar? Kind of like I am, but, like, kind of falling in love with her? Or, like, are you a Umar expert? I'm definitely not an expert, but I think I've read some older comics, like 80s, 70s comics that my father had. And, like, she was basically of you know the the very kind of over the top you know grandiose and i'm like it really feels like it's carried through to the modern era so i'm here for it i'm new to umar i'm gonna be honest i am not falling in love with her she is too much of a toxic mother i'm sorry oh but we (laughs) knew that was gonna happen come on yeah we knew it we knew it going in but you know what i don't like that kind of I don't like that kind of thing. She reminds me a little of Loxana Troy. Right. I, I kind of love to hate her. Like, I don't think she's a good person at all. But, like, ah, uh, it's like, damn it, she's she's going to be a badass. But, damn it, she's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've got uh, zero experience with Umar in the past. I really don't know anything about her besides her being Clea's mother and Dormammu's brother. However, in this issue, she is essentially a clone of Saturnine. Not only in proportion and outfit How? and... Dare you? Literally, <laughs> like Simon, but less charming. Oh, man. <laughs> Which is a feat. I don't dislike this about her. I'm I'm interested to know about this character. She just she does not have the charm of Saturnine, and that is okay too. I like uncharming ladies. If you think Saturnine has charm of any value, all she has is Braddock dick writing. Okay, that's all that seems to roll out of her mouth. Oh, I'm grand plan. Mm, so I can get a um, little bit of Braddock cake. Like, come on. I mean, I like a woman who is extremely uncharming and and like an absolutely un- unapologetic shit mother. Why not? She seems like she's very, very powerful and very, very mean. And I like that about women in Marvel Comics generally. Agreed. She's definitely out there being Umar the Unrelenting. I mean, like, if that's her nickname, like, you know she is going to be a badass character. <laughs> and I love seeing her try to find her own representation of love for her daughter because it sets up, it really drives home the point that, you know, the Faultine are 100% different from normal humans. And the way that their relationships are definitely aren't the same. And, like, yeah, is she shit? Absolutely. But, like, she's unapologetically shit. And she's like, yeah, I'm shit. But like, haha, daughter, I'm still trying to try. And I love you. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I know. It's like, you've got the most toxic shit parent ever. And yet there is that that tiny sliver of something resembling humanity. And so they are actually trying to tell you that they are actually proud of your actions, even though they are so far off base as to the the influence behind those actions. But yeah, at least they're trying. 
which is more than we can say for a lot of parents. That is very, very, very true. <laughs> the main battle of this book comes after a very awkward dinner and a very awkward dinner conversation. And it's with the Shadow Knight? Like, that's cool. Like, it's cool to see Jen McKay bringing in, you know, Moon Knight lore. Does anybody know about the Shadow Knight? The only thing I know is, is that he's Mark's brother who died when he was young. Uh, Mark has killed him several times. <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Like, I know a, the little bits that have been sprinkled in the book. Yeah, plainly, I don't think there's a lot to know about Shadow Knight. I mean, I have not read all of Shadow Knight stories at all. I have read the Incredible Hulk number 17 or whichever appearance, which is his first. He's Mark's brother who was resentful of Mark and turned out worse than him. Similar, you know, backstory and Mark kills him every once in a while. I would like to know more about this character, but I feel like they would have to appear in Moon Knight for that to happen. Yeah, because I mean, I'm going to be honest, like his backstory did not matter at all in this book. No, no. I, I think that's the case with Thunderstrike too. I think these are just people yeah. that certain comics readers will see and recognize and be like, oh, that's pretty cool. This very, very minor character is being made a cat's paw of this new villain. And mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's kind of cool that the villain likes to bring up old, like maybe maybe fan favorites. I think Thunderstrike was. I don't know about Shadow Knight, but it doesn't seem to really matter who they are so much as it's just like, these are characters that I think the writer is fond of and are kind of like, you know, low profile. Well, yeah, maybe they're using characters that don't get a whole lot of play that way. <laughs> if they get killed off more easily, nobody's there to complain. Yeah, I suppose so. I was going to say, he's choosing characters that don't get a whole lot of play, but they also don't get a lot of play here at all. Yeah, which is a shame because I think, honestly, there are some very compelling ways that you could bring these characters back and like really show that they are being forced into these actions and that they are tormented by like things that happened in their in their backstory in their origin in their life you know just they're supposed to be composites of like hive ghosts so why not have these ghosts you know screaming about you know the the child that they failed to save the the brother that they you know disowned themselves from who went on to lead a horrible life you know like there are, there are ways you could throw these things in there and like really force people to go back and do a deep dive maybe but instead they're just like they're here oh they got powdered uh, okay yeah we're not getting much with them but you know maybe it's good to get the interest picked and you know, maybe see more of these other characters in other books like hopefully jed brings the shadow knight into moon knight at some point i have a question have we actually had any kind of hints towards who's actually making Making these ghost hive things that look like other characters. <laughs> The Blast Marie Cartel is being headed by what was his name? Mr. Null? Mr. Nun? Something? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. It's definitely interesting to see these characters brought back for the probably few fans of them and really get no characterization because they really are just soulless husks. Like, they, they're coming back as purely servants of the Shadow Cartel and we are not getting any real characterization of them. Like, but it kind of makes me want to get more, like, especially Shadow Knight because like, I'm like, ah, oh, your design is so cool like you're mark's brother like how are you not showing up in moon Knight? this is really really cool yeah as i see it there's two major parts to this issue there's the like expression comedy of the dinner with your mother that you hate and I think that works for me because I think that Ferreira seems to be really good at doing facial expressions that are comedic and go with the timing of panels. And 
I don't know. I appreciate that. And the writing is sharp as always. And the fight scene, all of these fight scenes against Revenants are kind of boring to me, but this one was pretty cool for like how Clea has to string together an entirely new spell in the middle of the fight and the her thought process on building it and the, the actual full page where she reveals it is, is really beautiful. It's one of my favorite pages in here. The pencil work is really good. I think it has definitely improved, especially with the full page panels. Like I'm looking at this full page right here where Clea has a you know a spell going and she's going like there like that is perfectly executed i'm seeing you know a reason for this page where sometimes in the first few issues we were having problems with full page spreads you know wondering if they couldn't have been you know smaller panels and stuff. but i really 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 am loving this and the actual visual representation of magic in this book is really shaping up for me i think the faces are getting a lot more consistent i think the color works a lot better in these last few issues than they did in those first few issues. It's definitely something that's been improving art-wise for me. The pencils on, like, the splash page where Clea summons the demon to attack uh, Shadow Knight is, like, really incredible and my favorite page in the book. There's, there's lots of great detail, there's lots of great portion and just really interesting angles for the superhero action scenes and the guts spilling out of the spell that spill into the demon is just, like, a nice touch for Knight. Still not really grabbing me with the inks or the colors, though. I wouldn't say I'm super into that. I definitely see the art coming together a lot more, which is a massive improvement. Yeah, you know, it's going to take more time for it to solidify fully. It, it is improving and I like seeing that it is improving. So that is definitely something. And I did like the use of, of magic like <laughs> grenade launcher genie. <laughs> <laughs> I damn near died at that because I'm just like, what in the whole new world? <laughs> <laughs> like the Dijin, that was like one of my favorite like pages, panels. Like it's it it was well done. It's well lighted. It's well colored. And I uh, yeah, it, to me it rides that perfect line between comedy and threat. <laughs> yeah, I did really like the like grenade popping open with the take that witch and inside being a genie that he wished for to attack them. That's that was pretty good. God. I really enjoyed the art. The differences between the way that the characters were drawn during the dinner and during the battle really helped to put across like the emotion that Clea was feeling having to humor her mother during dinner and then the intensity of the battle. I really liked it. I'm actually really enjoying the colors. I'm finding them especially during the spell sequences they're very vibrant i love that i just really like the way that the spells almost glow Yes. Yeah. I love that we're getting magic that doesn't just look like energy blast. We're getting different shapes. We're getting different configurations. You know, the difference between Clea's and Umar's spell presentation. Clea has still some of the faultine type of presentation with it, but also has incorporated a lot more of the earth magic with Deep Strange in it, whereas Umar just purely has the faultine visualization. It's really cool to see, and I'm, I'm really digging it. I'm really, really digging it. I definitely love like that they changed like the, the the language pattern or the the symbol pattern and the line structure in these spells when she's creating a new magic on the fly because like most of us can recognize the the eye of agamotto and those very you know curved line type spells that stephen strange tends to throw like if you saw it you're like oh yeah yeah that's strange if you saw this you'd be like hmm 
hmm, this is, this is a little bit different. So yeah, I like that you could tell like at a glance that this is definitely different magic. Like I know at first Clea's outfit, we were all, you know, maybe not as in love with. Has Clea's strange outfit grown on you? I think it's fine. It looks like Doctor Strange and it's a fine costume. It's in some ways, it's a little less cool than a lot of Stephen Strange's costumes because it lacks like the separation of pants and jacket or pants and shirt. It's just like a black bodysuit with a cape and sash around the waist, you know. It's okay. I think her normal style is just so much more visually interesting, even if it was to be like a pink bodysuit with like the circles on the thighs or something or like black gloves on it. I think it would be more visually striking and more easily identifiable as like Clea from Doctor Strange comics. But, you know, I don't I don't hate it or anything like that. I just don't think it's as flamboyant or as fun as Clea usually is on page. The bodysuit's fine, I guess. I really do prefer the stuff that she wore prior to this series. It does give a lot of opportunities for new entries into Hawkeye Initiative, though. So that demon summoning page, that's definitely Hawkeye Initiative worthy. It's crazy how much better Dr. Stephen Strange would look if his costume was a little bit more like Clea's. <laughs> Two, I'm loving the subtle update of Umar's outfit. It doesn't look 70s dated as it usually does. It looks and very Saturnine. I gotta agree with you, Steve. It's very Saturnine. And there is a lot of Saturnine's coldness and steel persona in Umar and the representation that we're getting. So, like, I could also see Saturnine being a shit mom. All the incredibly powerful trans-dimensional sorceress type women have an outlet mall that they go to to get their outfits, okay? <laughs> I hate Clear Strange's outfit. I really do. <laughs> the cape has grown on me. I will give it that. But cheesecake poses, the literally painted on bodysuit that shows that this artist does not understand how breasts work um, or how fabric works when they go over breasts. Like the glove portion is cool. What the fuck was wrong with Clea's outfit beforehand? Like, she's always had really great, iconic outfits. There's a long history of them. Fair, I can get that. My biggest thing that's hard for me to get past is in her human form is her hair. It looks like a Jan Van Dyne or Sue Storm haircut and not like something you would expect from the Sorcerer Supreme of two dimensions. Mm -hmm. What did we think about this demon that comes in and is basically summoned just to lose and die? I mean, she's smart to be using their magic against them. If they're going to hand her ammo, why not use it? Agreed. Demons are spendable. Why would she give a fuck whether or not the demon was okay with this or whether or not, you know, I mean, it's, it's a fucking demon. She doesn't care. I don't expect Clea to care because she is a warlord from another dimension, but I don't even expect Stephen Strange to care, but I care. It was a really good way to buy some time. Have yeah. Shadow Knight's attention redirected to somebody else so that she could piece together a brand new spell, something that you normally don't want to do on a moment's no notice. Yeah, agreed. Magic is dangerous, right? It's very, like, it should be very thought out. You know, you have to imagine the consequences. You have to remember that every action that you do is going to have, you know, negative consequences, especially if you are using dark magic. And it's interesting to see that she's not looking at the ramifications. It's not like this was anybody she cared for. It wasn't anybody that was supposed to be under her care. So it wasn't like, you know, black market or anybody that she, you know, would have known 
known in any way. It was just a demon, and it was a demon that the blasphemy cartel had thrown at her. And so, so basically, she'd already had contact with it and went, well, let's see, I banished you. I know where I put you. <laughs> Screw it. I can just throw you back out. There we go. It was a good stall tactic. You know, she chose her Pokemon. It went out there and battled for her while she got her other shit ready. And then she threw, uh, uh, apparently, an exorcism attack and uh, defeated uh, Shadow Knight. Because, holy fuck, he was talking like a Pokemon, too. <laughs> he was talking like a <laughs> Pokemon, yeah. He only said yeah. his own name. Like, he could have been dead-ass silent. Or just made, like, growling noises like a fucking zombie, and that would have been better. Him screaming his own name is either him being a Pokemon or him being a Chad. So, pick. Did Thunderstrike say his own name over and over again, too? I think he must yep. have. Well, yep. that's great. I'm glad that we have Pokemon here. At least it's consistent. <laughs> okay, if you had to pick a dead D-list superhero or supervillain to make into your personal Pokemon team, who would be on it <laughs> who even is dead at this point <laughs> oh right like honestly if they're d-list and dead you probably don't remember them. <laughs> she is disappeared in another reality i will say day tripper <laughs> she's not dead uh, that's but she's, true. Like... she's enough in another reality still right yeah yeah, yeah. i would have d-man uh but he wouldn't be dead he would just be on my side honestly i think i would pick wild child Araco style oh <laughs> He's oh. technically dead. Yeah, he is technically dead. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty Give me my egg with lipstick. I need Manny. Yeah. Oh my god, I yeah. love Manny. Yeah, Saber Tooth will just let him off his chain and like, go, wild child, go get him. <laughs> Use your tackle. Use agility. <laughs> I feel like not a lot really happens in this issue. The promise of like a dinner comedy with Umar is kind of like really quickly interrupted. And I feel like the fight takes a lot of the issue up. Do we have any new guesses as to who the Harvestman is? I had said that it was probably Doctor Strange, but now I don't think so at all. No, oh. I mean, because you know what's coming in the next issue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't help. Nope. It would have to be somebody who deals with like death, eternity, like conceptually high kind of stuff, I would think. I'm just starting to think he is just like a new character. Yeah, he's got to be new. I can't think of anybody who'd be tied to death like this. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you True. what, I'll be so mad if it's Kang. Uh, <laughs> if it's a Kang, I'll be so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I would not blame you. <laughs> How do we feel that this is going into the last issue of the arc? And, you know, we're going to get a reanimated version of Doctor Strange, supposedly. So, like, I'm excited. But if it's still going on, he can't come back yet. I'd love to see it go on with Leah as a Sorcerer Supreme for a lot longer. But, like, you know, personally, like, we all know Strange is coming back. So if he comes back this next issue, cool. Maybe we can see Strange and Clea, you know, get some more panel time together i don't think he's coming back next issue i think he'll be possessed by a thousand ghosts and cleo will be like well i can't do anything with this <laughs> and she'll have to kill it and then try again i hate to say it i really hate to say it because i wanted this book to really grab a hold and it just hasn't i'm i'm tapping out like i've given it probably two more issues than i wanted to and at least an extra issue than it should have been so i'm at the point where the pacing is not there the the story is not there it's just it's not the book for me yeah i I don't know i'm gonna want to know the conclusion of this arc and honestly like i read the doctor strange books i am invested in clea if i wasn't already somebody who reads all the doctor strange stuff i don't know if i'd be finishing the series at this point but i'm gonna probably hang on at least another issue or more i need to see the conclusion of the arc but i also need clea to move on from this obsession with 
with bringing Stephen back. Yeah, she can't spend her whole run like this, right? Yeah. She also brought it into Hellfire Gala, too. So she's a single-focus character, and honestly, there's only so much you can do 